This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Maureen O'Brien. MariaElectrics.blogspot.com. The Spy by James Fenimore Cooper. Chapter 7 The Game's Afoot. Follow Your Spirit. Shakespeare. The rough and unimproved face of the country, the frequency of covers, together with the great distance from their own country and the facilities afforded them for rapid movements to the different points of the war by the undisputed command of the ocean, had united to deter the English from employing a heavy force in cavalry in their early efforts to subdue the revolted colonies. Only one regiment of regular horse was sent from the mother country during the struggle. But legions and independent corps were formed in different places, as it best accorded with the views of the royal commanders, or suited the exigency of the times. These were not unfrequently composed of men raised in the colonies, and at other times drafts were had from the regiments of the line, and the soldiers were made to lay aside the musket and bayonet, and taught to wield the sabre and carbine. One particular body of the subsidiary troops was included in this arrangement, and the Hessian Jaegers were transformed into a corps of heavy and inactive horse. Opposed to them were the hardiest spirits of America. Most of the cavalry regiments of the Continental Army were led and officered by gentlemen from the South. The high and haughty courage of the commanders had communicated itself to the privates, who were men selected with care and great attention to the service that they were intended to perform. While the British were confined to their empty conquests in the possession of a few of the, the larger towns, or marched through counties that were swept of everything like military supplies, the light troops of their enemies had the range of the whole interior. The sufferings of the line of the American army were great beyond example. But possessing the power, and feeling themselves engaged in a cause which justified severity, the cavalry officers were vigilant in providing for their wants, and the horse were well mounted, well fed, and consequently eminently effective. Perhaps the world could not furnish more brave, enterprising, and resistless corps of light cavalry than a few that were in the Continental Service at the time of which we write. Dunwoody's men had often tried their prowess against the enemy, and they now sat panting to be led once more against foes whom they seldom charged in vain. Their wishes were soon to be gratified, for their commander had scarcely time to regain his seat in the saddle before a body of the enemy came sweeping round the base of the hill, which intersected the view to the south. A few minutes enabled the major to distinguish their character. In one troop he saw the green coats of the cowboys, and in the other the leathern helmets and wooden saddles of the Jaegers. Their numbers were about equal to the body under his immediate orders. On reaching the open space near the cottage of Harvey Birch, the enemy halted and drew up his men in line, evidently making preparations for a charge. At this moment 
a column of foot appeared in the vale, and pressed forward to the bank of the brook we have already mentioned. Major Dunwoody was not less distinguished by coolness and judgment than, where occasion offered, by his dauntless intrepidity. He at once saw his advantage, and determined to profit by it. The column he led began slowly to retire from the field, when the youthful German, who commanded the enemy's horse, fearful of missing an easy conquest, gave the word to charge. Few troops were more hardy than the cowboys. They sprang eagerly forward in the pursuit, with a confidence created by the retiring foe and the column in their rear. The Hessians followed more slowly, but in better order. The trumpets of the Virginians now sounded long and lively. They were answered by a strain from the party in ambush that went to the hearts of their enemies. The column of Dunwoody wheeled in perfect order, opened, and as the word to charge was given, the troops of Lawton emerged from their cover, with their leader in advance, waving his saber over his head and shouting, in a voice that was heard above the clangor of the martial music. The charge threatened too much for the refugee troop. They scattered in every direction, flying from the field as fast as their horses, the chosen beasts of Westchester, could carry them. Only a few were hurt, but such as did meet the arms of their avenging countrymen never survived the blow to tell who struck it. It was upon the poor vassals of the German tyrant that the shock fell. Disciplined to the most exact obedience, these ill-fated men met the charge bravely, but they were swept before the mettled horses and the nervous arms of their antagonists like chaff before the wind. Many of them were literally ridden down, and Dunwoody soon saw the field without an opposing foe. The proximity of the infantry prevented pursuit, and behind its column the few Hessians who escaped unhurt sought protection. The more cunning refugees dispersed in small bands, taking various and devious routes back to their old station in front of Harlem. Many was the sufferer, in cattle, furniture, and person, that was created by this route, for the dispersion of a troop of cowboys was only the extension of an evil. Such a scene could not be expected to be acted so near them, and the inmates of the cottage take no interest in the result. In truth, the feelings it excited pervaded every bosom, from the kitchen to the parlor, terror and horror had prevented the ladies from being spectators, but they did not feel the less. Francis continued lying in the posture we have mentioned, offering up fervent and incoherent petitions for the safety of her countrymen, although in her inmost heart she had personified her nation by the graceful image of Peyton Dunwoody. Her aunt and sister were less exclusive in their devotions, but Sarah began to feel, as the horrors of war were thus brought home to her senses, less pleasure in her anticipated triumphs. The inmates of Mr. Wharton's kitchen were four, namely Caesar and his spouse, their granddaughter, a jet-black damsel of twenty, and the boy before alluded to. The blacks were the remnants of a race of negroes who had been entailed on his estate from Mr. Wharton's maternal ancestors, who were descended from the early Dutch colonists. 
time, depravity, and death had reduced them to this small number, and the boy, who was white, had been added by Miss Peyton to the establishment as an assistant to perform the ordinary services of a, fo of a footman. Caesar, after first using the precaution to place himself under the cover of an angle in the wall for a screen against any roving bullet which might be traversing the air, became an amused spectator of the skirmish. The sentinel on the piazza was at the distance of but a few feet from him, and he entered into the spirit of the chase with all the ardor of a tried bloodhound. He noticed the approach of the black in his judicious position with a smile of contempt as he squared himself towards the enemy, offering his unprotected breast to any dangers which might come. After considering the arrangement of Caesar for a moment, with ineffable disdain, the dragoon said with great coolness, "'You seem very careful of that beautiful person of yours, Mr. Blueskin.' "'A bullet hurt a colored man as much as a white,' muttered the black, surlily, casting a glance of much satisfaction at his rampart. "'Suppose I make an experiment,' returned the sentinel. As he spoke, he deliberately drew a pistol from his belt and leveled it at the black. Caesar's teeth chattered at the appearance of the dragoon, although he believed nothing serious was intended. At this moment the column of Dunwoody began to retire, and the royal cavalry commenced their charge. "'There, Mr. Light Horseman,' said Caesar eagerly, who believed the Americans were retiring in earnest. "'Why, you rebels don't fight. See? See how King George's men make Major Dunwoody run.' "'Good gentleman, too, but he don't like to fight a wriggler.' "'Damn your wrigglers!' cried the other fiercely. "'Wait a minute, Blackie, and you'll see Captain Jack Lawton come out from behind yonder hill "'and scatter these cowboys like wild geese who've lost their leader.' Caesar supposed the party under Lawton to have sought the shelter of the hill from motives similar to that which had induced him to place the wall between himself and the battleground. But the fact soon verified— the trooper's prophecy, and the black witnessed, with consternation, the total rout of the royal horse. The sentinel manifested his exultation at the success of his comrades with loud shouts, which soon brought his companion, who had been left in the more immediate charge of Henry Wharton, to the open window of the parlor. "'See, Tom, see!' cried the delighted trooper. "'How Captain Lawton makes that Hessian's leather cap fly!' and now the major has killed the officer's horse. Zounds! Why didn't he kill the Dutchman and save the horse? A few pistols were discharged at the flying cowboys, and a spent bullet broke a pane of glass within a few feet of Caesar. Imitating the posture of the great tempter of our race, the black sought the protection of the inside of the building and immediately ascended to the parlor. The lawn in front of the locusts was hidden from the view of the road by a close line of shrubbery, and the horses of the true dragoons had been left linked together under its shelter to await the movements of their masters. At this moment, two cowboys who had been cut off from the retreat to their own party rode furiously through the gate, with an intention of escaping to the open wood in the rear of the cottage. 
The victorious Americans pressed the retreating Germans until they had driven them under the protection of the fire of the infantry, and feeling themselves, in the privacy of the lawn, relieved from any immediate danger, the predatory warriors yielded to a temptation that few of the corps were ever known to resist—opportunity and horse-flesh. With a hardihood and presence of mind that could only exist from long practice in similar scenes, they made toward their intended prizes by an al almost spontaneous movement. They were busily engaged in separating the fastenings of the horses, when the trooper on the piazza discharged his pistols, and rushed, sword in hand, to the rescue. The entrance of Caesar into the parlor had induced the wary dragoon within to turn his attention more closely on his prisoner, but this new interruption drew him again to the window. He threw his body out of the building, and with dreadful imprecations endeavored, by his threats and appearance, to frighten the marauders from their prey. The moment was enticing. Three hundred of his comrades were within a mile of the cottage. Unridden horses were running at large in every direction, and Henry Wharton seized the unconscious sentinel by his legs and threw him headlong into the lawn. Caesar vanished from the room and drew a bolt of the outer door. The fall of the soldier was not great, and recovering his feet, he turned his fury for a moment on his prisoner. To scale the window in the face of such an enemy was, however, impossible and on trial he found the main entrance barred. His comrade now called loudly upon him for aid, and, forgetful of everything else, the discomfited trooper rushed to his assistance. One horse was instantly liberated, but the other was already fastened to the saddle of a cowboy, and the four retired behind the building, cutting furiously at each other with their sabres, and making the air resound with their imprecations. Caesar threw the outer door open, and, pointing to the remaining horse that was quietly biting the faded herbage of the lawn, he exclaimed, "'Run! Now run! Massa Harry, run!' "'Yes!' cried the youth as he vaulted into the saddle. "'Now, indeed, my honest fellow, is the time to run!' He beckoned hastily to his father, who stood at the window in speechless anxiety, with his hands extended toward his child in the attitude of benediction, and adding, "'God bless you, Caesar! Salute the girls!' He dashed through the gate with the rapidity of lightning. The African watched him with anxiety as he gained the highway, saw him inclined to the right, and riding furiously under the brow of some rocks, which on that side rose perpendicularly, disappear behind a projection which soon hid him from view." The delighted Caesar closed the door, pushing bolt after bolt, and turning the key until it would turn no more, soliloquizing the whole time on the happy escape of his young master. How well he ride! Teach him good deal myself. Salute a young lady! <laughs> Miss Fanny wouldn't let old colored man kiss a red cheek. When the fortune of the day was decided, and the time arrived for the burial of the dead, two cowboys and a Virginian were found in the rear of the locusts, to be included in the number. Happily for Henry Wharton, the searching eyes of his captors were examining, through a pocket-glass, 
the column of infantry that still held its position on the bank of the stream, while the remnants of the Hessian Jaegers were seeking its friendly protection. His horse was of the best blood of Virginia, and carried him with the swiftness of the wind along the valley. And the heart of the youth was already beating tumultuously with pleasure at his deliverance, when a well-known voice reached his startled ear, crying aloud, "'Avely done, Captain. Don't spare the whip, and turn to your left before you cross the brook.' Wharton turned his head in surprise, and saw, sitting on the point of a jutting rock that commanded a bird's-eye view of the valley, his former guide, Harvey Birch. His pack, much diminished in size, lay at the feet of the peddler, who waved his hat to the youth exultingly as the latter flew by him. The English captain took the advice of this mysterious being, and finding a good road which led to the highway that intersected the valley, turned down its direction, and was soon opposite to his friends. The next minute he crossed the bridge and stopped his charger before his old acquaintance, Colonel Wellmere. "'Captain Wharton!' exclaimed the astonished commander of the English troops. "'Dressed in mohair, and mounted on a rebel dragoon horse. Are you from the clouds in this attire, and in such a style?' "'Thank God!' cried the youth, recovering his breath. "'I'm safe, and have escaped from the hands of my enemies. But five minutes since, and I was a prisoner, and threatened with the gallows.' "'The gallows, Captain Wharton!' Surely those traitors to the king would never dare to commit another murder in cold blood. Is it not enough that they took the life of André? Wherefore did they threaten you with a similar fate? Under the pretense of a similar offence, said the captain, briefly explaining to the group of listeners the manner of his capture, the grounds of his personal apprehensions, and the method of his escape. By the time he had concluded his narration, the fugitive Germans were collected in the rear of the column of infantry, and Colonel Wellmere cried aloud, "'From my soul I congratulate you, my brave friend. Mercy is a quality with which these traitors are unacquainted, and you are doubly unfortunate in escaping from their hands uninjured. Prepare yourself to grant me your assistance, and I will soon afford you a noble revenge.' I do not think there was danger of personal outrage to any man, Colonel Wellmere, from a party that Major Dunwoody commands, returned young Wharton, with a slight glow on his face. His character is above the imputation of such an offence. Neither do I think it altogether prudent to cross this brook into the open plain, in the face of those Virginian horse, flushed as they must be with the success they have just obtained." you call the rout of those irregulars and those sluggish Hessians a deed to boast of?' said the other, with a contemptuous smile. "'You speak of the affair, Captain Wharton, as if your boasted Mr. Dunwoody, for major he is none, had discomfited the bodyguards of your king.' "'And I must be allowed to say, Colonel Wellmere,' that if the bodyguards of my king were in yon field, they would meet a foe that it would be dangerous to despise. Sir, my boasted Mr. Dunwoody is the pride of Washington's army as a cavalry officer, cried Henry with warmth. Dunwoody. Dunwoody, repeated the colonel slowly. 
Surely I have met the gentleman before. I have been told you once saw him for a moment at the town re residence of my sister's, replied Wharton, with a lurking smile. Ah, I do remember me of such a youth. And does the most potent congress of these rebellious colonies entrust their soldiers to the leading of such a warrior? Ask the commander of yon Hessian horse whether he thinks Major Dunwoody worthy of the confidence. Colonel Wellmere was far from wanting that kind of pride which makes a man bear himself bravely in the presence of his enemies. He had served in America a long time, without ever meeting with any but new-raised levies or the militia of the country. These would sometimes fight, and that fearlessly, but they as often chose to run away without pulling a trigger. He was too apt to judge from externals, and thought it impossible for men whose gaiters were so clean, whose tread so regular, and who wheeled with so much accuracy, to be beaten. In addition to all these, they were Englishmen, and their success was certain. Colonel Wellmere had never been kept much in the field, or these notions which he had brought with him from home, and which had been greatly increased by the vaporing of a garrison town, would have long since vanished. He listened to the warm reply of Captain Wharton with a supercilious smile, and then inquired, "'You would not have us retire, sir, before these boasted horsemen, "'without doing something that may deprive them in of part of the glory "'which you appear to think they have gained.' "'I would have you advised, Colonel Wellmere, "'of the danger you are about to encounter.' "'Danger is but an unseemly word for a soldier,' "'continued the British commander with a sneer.' "'and one as little dreaded by the sixtieth "'as any corps who wear the royal livery,' "'cried Henry Wharton fiercely. "'Give but the word to charge, and let our actions speak. "'Now again I know my young friend,' "'cried Wellmere soothingly. "'But if you have anything to say before we fight "'that can in any manner help us in our attack, "'we'll listen. "'You know the force of the rebels. "'Are there more of them in ambush?' "'Yes,' replied the youth, chafing still under the other's sneers. "'In the skirt of this wood, on our right, are a small party of foot. "'Their horse are all before you.' "'Where they will not continue long,' cried Wellmere, turning to the few officers around him. "'Gentlemen, we shall cross the stream in column, and deploy on the plain beyond, "'or else we shall not be able to entice these valiant Yankees within the reach of our muskets.' "'Captain Warden, I claim your assistance in a, as an aide-de-camp.' The youth shook his head in disapprobation of a movement which his good sense taught him was rash, but prepared with alacrity to perform his duty in the impending trial. During this conversation, which was held at a small distance in advance of the British column, and in full view of the Americans, Dunwoody had been collecting his scattered troops, securing his few prisoners, and retiring to the ground where he had been posted at the first appearance of his enemy. Satisfied with the success he had already obtained, and believing the English too wary to give him an opportunity of harassing them further, he was about to withdraw the guides, 
and leaving a strong party on the ground to watch the movements of the regulars, to fall back a few miles to a favorable place for taking up his quarters for the night. Captain Lawton was reluctantly listening to the reasoning of his commander, and had brought out his favorite glass to see if no opening could be found for an advantageous attack, when he suddenly exclaimed, "'How's this? A blue coat among those scarlet gentry? As I hope to live to see old Virginia, it is my masquerading friend of the sixtieth, the handsome Captain Wharton, escaped from two of my best men.' He had not done speaking, when the survivor of these heroes joined his troop, bringing with him his own horse and those of his, the cowboys. He reported the death of his comrade and the escape of his prisoner. As the deceased was the immediate sentinel over the person of young Wharton, and the other was not to be blamed for defending the horses which were more particularly under his care, his captain heard him with uneasiness, but without anger. This intelligence made an entire change in the views of Major Dunwoody. He saw at once that his own reputation was involved in the escape of his prisoner. The order to recall the guides was countermanded, and he now joined his second-in-command, watching as eagerly as the impetuous Lawton himself for some opening to assail his foe to advantage. But two hours before, and Dunwoody had felt the chance which made Henry Wharton his captive, as the severest blow he had ever sustained. Now he panted for an opportunity in which, by risking his own life, he might recapture his friend. All other considerations were lost in the goadings of a wounded spirit, and he might have soon emulated Lawton in hardihood had not Wellmere and his troops at this moment crossed the brook into the open plain. There! cried the delighted captain, as he pointed out the movement with his finger. There comes John Bull into the mousetrap, and with eyes wide open. Surely, said Dunwoody eagerly, he will not deploy his column on that flat. Wharton must tell him of the ambush, but if he does, we will not leave him a dozen sound skins in his battalion, interrupted the other, springing into his saddle. The truth was soon apparent, for the English column, after advancing for a short distance on the level land, deployed with an accuracy that would have done them honor on a field day in their own Hyde Park. "'Prepare to mount! Mount!' cried Dunwoody, the last word being repeated by Lawton in a tone that rang in the ears of Caesar, who stood at the open window of the cottage. The black recoiled in dismay having lost all his confidence in Captain Lawton's timidity, for he thought he yet saw him emerging from his cover and waving his sword on high. As the British line advanced slowly and in exact order, the guides opened a galling fire. It began to annoy that part of the royal troops which was nearest to them. Wellmere listened to the advice of the veteran who was next to him in rank, and ordered two companies to dislodge the American foot from their hiding-place. The movement created a slight confusion, and Dunwoody seized the opportunity to charge. No ground could be more favorable for the maneuvers of horse, and the attack of the Virginians was irresistible. It was ch aimed chiefly at the bank opposite to the wood, 
in order to clear the Americans from the fire of their friends who were concealed. And it was completely successful. Wellmere, who was on the left of his line, was overthrown by the impetuous fury of his assailants. Dunwoody was in time to save him from the impending blow of one of his men, and raised him from the ground, had him placed on a horse, and delivered to the custody of his orderly. The officer who had suggested the attack upon the guides had been entrusted with its execution, but the menace was sufficient for these irregulars. In fact, their duty was performed, and they retired along the skirt of the wood with intent to regain their horses, which had been left under a guard at the upper end of the valley. The left of the British line was outflanked by the Americans, who doubled in their rear and thus made the rout in that quarter total. But the second-in-command, perceiving how the battle went, promptly wheeled his party and threw in a heavy fire on the dragoons as they passed him to the charge. With this party was Henry Wharton, who had volunteered to assist in dispersing the guides. A ball struck his bridle-arm and compelled him to change hands. As the dragoons dashed by them, rending the air with their shouts, and with trumpets sounding a lively strain, the charger ridden by the youth became ungovernable. He plunged, reared, and, his rider being unable with his wounded arm to manage the impatient animal, Henry Wharton found himself, in less than a minute, unwillingly riding by the side of Captain Lawton. The dragoon comprehended at a glance the ludicrous situation of his new comrade, but had only time to cry aloud before they plunged into the English line, the horse knows the righteous cause better than his rider. Captain Wharton, you are welcome to the ranks of freedom. No time was lost, however, by Lawton, after the charge was completed, in securing his prisoner again. And perceiving him to be hurt, he directed him to be conveyed to the rear. The Virginian troopers dealt out their favors with no gentle hands on that part of the royal foot who were thus left in a great measure at their mercy. Dunwoody, observing that the remnant of the Hessians had again ventured on the plain, led on in pursuit, and easily overtaking their light and half-fed horses, soon destroyed the remainder of the detachment. In the meanwhile... Great numbers of the English, taking advantage of the smoke and confusion in the field, were enabled to get in the rear of the body of their countrymen, which still preserved its order in a line parallel to the wood, but which had been obliged to hold its fire, with the fear of injuring friends as well as foes. The fugitives were directed to form a second line within the wood itself, and under cover of the trees. This arrangement was not yet completed when Captain Lawton called to a youth who commanded the other troop left with that part of the force which remained on the ground, and proposed charging the unbroken line of the British. The proposal was as promptly accepted as it had been made, and the troops were arrayed for the purpose. The eagerness of their leader prevented the preparations necessary to ensure success, and the horse receiving a destructive fire as they advanced, were thrown into additional confusion. Both Lawton and his more juvenile comrade fell at this discharge. Fortunately for the credit of the Virginians, 
Major Dunwoody re-entered the field at this critical instant. He saw his troops in disorder. At his feet lay weltering in blood George Singleton, a youth endeared to him by numberless virtues. And Lawton was unhorsed and stretched on the plain. The eye of the youthful warrior flashed fire. Riding between the, this squadron and the enemy, in a voice that reached the hearts of his dragoons, he recalled them to their duty. His presence and word acted like magic. The clamor of voices ceased. The line was formed promptly and with exactitude. The charge sounded, and, led on by their commander, the Virginians swept across the plain with an impetuosity that nothing could withstand, and the field was instantly cleared of the enemy. Those who were not destroyed sought a shelter in the woods. Dunwoody slowly withdrew from the fire of the English who were covered by the trees, and commenced the painful duty of collecting his dead and wounded. The sergeant charged with conducting Henry Wharton to a place where he might procure surgical aid set about performing his duty with alacrity, in order to return as soon as possible to the scene of strife. They had not reached the middle of the plain before the captain noticed a man whose appearance and occupation forcibly arrested his attention. His head was bald and bare, but a well-powdered wig was to be seen, half-concealed, in the pocket of his breeches. His coat was off, and his arms were naked to the elbow. Blood had disfigured much of his dress, and his hands and even face bore this mark of his profession. In his mouth was a cigar. In his right hand, some instruments of strange formation, and in his left, the remnants of an apple, with which he occasionally relieved the duty of the before-mentioned cigar. He was standing lost in contemplation of a Hessian, who lay breathless before him. At a little distance were three or four of the guides, Leading, leaning on their muskets and straining their eyes in the direction of the combatants. And at his elbow stood a man who, from the implements in his hand, seemed an assistant. "'There, sir, is the doctor,' said the attendant of Henry, very coolly. "'He will patch up your arm in the twinkling of an eye.' And beckoning to the guides to approach, he whispered and pointed to his prisoner and then galloped furiously toward his comrades. Wharton advanced to the side of this strange figure, and, observing himself to be unnoticed, was about to request his assistance, when the other broke silence in a soliloquy. "'Now I know this man to have been killed by Captain Lawton, as well as if I had seen him strike the blow.' How often have I strove to teach him the manner in which he can disable his adversary without destroying life! It is cruel thus unnecessarily to cut off the human race. And furthermore, such blows as these render professional assistance unnecessary. It is, in a measure, treating the lights of science with disrespect." "'If, sir, your leisure will admit,' said Henry Wharton, "'I must beg your attention to a slight hurt.' "'Ah!' cried the other, starting, and examining him from head to foot. 
"'You are from the field below. "'Is there much business there, sir?' "'Indeed,' answered Henry, "'accepting the offer of the surgeon "'to assist in removing his coat. "'Tis a stirring time.' "'Stirring?' repeated the surgeon, "'busily employed with his dressings. "'You give me great pleasure, sir, "'for so long as they can stir, "'there must be life. "'And while there is life, you know, "'there is hope. "'But here my art is of no use. "'I did put in the brains of one patient, "'but I rather think the man must have been dead "'before I saw him. "'It is a curious case, sir. "'I will take you to see it. Uh, "'Only across the fence there, "'where you may perceive so many bodies together.' Ah! The ball has glanced around the bone without shattering it. You are fortunate in falling into the hands of an old practitioner, or you might have lost this limb. Indeed, said Henry, with a slight uneasiness, I did not apprehend the injury to be so serious. Oh, the hurt is not bad, but you have such a pretty arm for an operation. The pleasure of the thing might have tempted a novice. The devil! cried the captain. Can there be any pleasure in mutilating a fellow creature? Sir, said the surgeon with gravity, a scientific amputation is a very pretty operation, and doubtless might tempt a younger man, in the hurry of business, to overlook all the particulars of the case. Further conversation was interrupted by the appearance of the dragoons, slowly marching towards their former halting-place, and new applications from the slightly wounded soldiers who now came riding in, making hasty demands on the skill of the doctor. The guides took charge of Wharton, and with a heavy heart the young man retraced his steps to his father's cottage. The English had lost in the several charges about one-third of their foot, but the remainder were rallied in the wood, and Dunwoody, perceiving them to be too strongly posted to assail, had left a strong party with Captain Lawton, with orders to watch their motions, and to seize every opportunity to harass them before they re-embarked. Intelligence had reached the major of another party being out, by the way of the Hudson, and his duty required that he should hold himself in readiness to defeat the intentions of these also. Captain Lawton received his orders with strong injunctions to make no assault on the foe, unless a favorable chance should offer. The injury received by this officer was in the head, being stunned by a glancing bullet, and parting with a laughing declaration from the major, that if he again forgot himself, they should all think him more materially hurt. Each took his own course. The British were a light party without baggage that had been sent out to destroy certain stores understood to be collecting for the use of the American army. They now retired through the woods to the heights, and, keeping the route along their summits, in places unassailable by cavalry, commenced a retreat to their boats. End of chapter 7